Last week we looked in Matthew, and in Matthew we learned that God had made a promise that his church would never falter, his church would never fail. But we know that for huge swaths of history, if you study it out, there were times where people that were preaching the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone were killed for it, left and right, small groups uh, under execution. And then there was a period uh, about 500 years ago where that started to change pretty drastically. They call it the Protestant Reformation. Protestant uh, does not mean protesting the Catholic Church. Protestant means protestari. That's kind of interesting. For the scriptures. Uh, it was a renewal of interest in the Bible. It, didn't, it was not the origin of true churches because true churches existed from the time that Jesus called out his first disciples on the seashores of Galilee and said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But there was a big shift where those churches, the, well, that people that wanted to go based on the Bible rather than based on the Pope were able to come out into the open. And the question is, what, what changed? Why is it that for 1,500 years of Christian history, well, not 1,500, so it was about 325 A.D., uh, the Pope fused with the Roman Empire and created what they called the Holy Roman Catholic Empire. They called together churches from all over the world, and some of the churches refused to come. They said, we're not going to ally ourselves with the wickedness of the Roman Empire. We're not going to try to use the sword to force people to come to Christ. The only thing that's going to bring people to a real relationship with God is the Spirit. You can't make it the law. Those churches were exiled. They were uh, condemned. They were excommunicated, called anathema. And it was illegal to be a part of those churches. They were driven underground. When that happened, over time, the Bishop of Rome slowly but surely came to be called the Pope, and he claimed to be the heir to Peter. In fact, an interesting little note is that for the first 1,200 years of Catholic history, no one claimed that the Pope was infallible. The time that the Pope was claimed to be infallible was after there had been three Popes at once. There were three different men who all claimed to be Pope. And they couldn't decide who really deserved to be in charge. And so they called together a group of leaders. They called a council. And that group said, we're going to pick the pope. And they picked a different man. Not one of the three people who originally claimed to be pope, but a fourth person. (laughs) They picked this fourth person and said, he's the pope. And he said, you're right, I am the pope. And the pope is in charge of all the councils because the pope is never wrong. So the Pope that was chosen by the council said he was more important than the council and said he was the final authority and that he could not make any error when he spoke from the seat of Peter. Now what's interesting then is that maybe some of you saw this week Pope Francis announced that the, it is now a sin uh, to support the death penalty. It's kind of an interesting thing. Pope Benedict, the Pope before him, said it's not a sin to support the death penalty. Pope Francis said, Pope Benedict was not wrong, but God has given me a new revelation. (laughs) Said it didn't used to be wrong, but now it's wrong. Now, how do we avoid things like that? You you understand then, something changed in about 1320. About 1320, there was a man named Wycliffe. Wycliffe was originally a well-behaved Roman Catholic priest, but he had a problem. He learned how to read. And when he learned how to read, he started reading the Bible. 
when he started reading the Bible, he started realizing that some of the things that the Pope had told him were not necessarily true. As he did this, he became more and more pushed back. Wycliffe uh, lived from 1320 to 1384, and during that time, he started to take the popular translation of the Bible at that time, the Latin Vulgate, and translate it into English. He said, every plowboy ought to know more about what God has really said than the Pope does. And so he decided to start translating the Bible into the common language. He was put, he was given a lot of trouble for it, but he was able to translate pretty good sections of the Bible, not from the original Greek and Hebrew, but from the Latin Vulgate. He was tolerated, but not very well liked. He died of a stroke at the age of, six, of 64. After Wycliffe died, people started getting Bibles. And as they started getting Bibles, they started causing problems. And so Wycliffe's Bible was banned, and it was announced that the only people who were allowed to have access to the Bible were the priests. In fact, they were chained to the altars in the churches so that the individual people could not get the Bibles. Not only that, but it can only be read in Latin. said, if you're serious enough about studying the Bible then you'll learn Latin so that you can read it in the high holy language. There's no reason for the Bible to be in the common language of the people. So Wycliffe's Bibles became only available on the black market. One of the, after he died with all these problems with these bands, it got to the point that they dug up his bones and burned his bones because they said they didn't get a chance to burn him at the stake while he was alive. What again was his crime? His crime was saying people ought to have the Bible. And that was too dangerous. It's a very important man who came a little bit later in Christian history. William Tyndale was born in 1494. William Tyndale said, you know, Wycliffe did a good thing translating the Bible into English from the Latin Vulgate, but God inspired his word in Hebrew and in Greek. He said, and we want to have the word of God from the original languages in the language of the people. Tyndale, slowly but surely, in hiding, began to translate the Bible into English, especially the New Testament. He had some people work with him. At this point, it was outright illegal. William Tyndale was found out, forced deeper into hiding, until a man pretended to be his friend and moved into the town he was in, discovered him, got to know him, and earned his trust. The man was a con artist. He'd actually conned his father out of his inheritance and then gambled it all away, and now he's looking for some way to get back into the graces of the powerful and the rich. So he befriends William Tyndale, and invites him out to dinner one night. I guess I, I skipped a part. William Tyndale's Bibles were so unpopular that as they began to be uh, circulated, Henry VIII banned even possessing a Bible. It was illegal according to English law, and there, was, uh, there were major priests that staged Bible burnings in the courtyards of the churches. So they'd have people bring in Bibles, and they'd burn the Bibles to show nobody wants any English Bible, because all it's going to do is get you into trouble. 
Tyndale's so-called friend, uh, John, Hen- or, uh, yeah, John Henry, invited him to dinner. And, of course, as they were leaving the restaurant, signaled to the two people outside, had Wycliffe go in front of him. They ambushed him, carried him away to jail. Wycliffe, there was some time be after his trial, or there was some time before his trial, and so he wrote letters and snuck copies of the Greek New Testament back into his cell and snuck copies of his English translation out. <laughs> Wycliffe in his, I'm sorry, Tyndale in his cell, right up until his death, continued to translate the Bible. Finally, he was condemned to die. And the charges against him read things including claims that salvation can be obtained by faith alone apart from works. (laughs) Tyndale was taken to a platform they built with a wooden cross on it with a rope tied at the top. The rope was tied around his neck and the executioner grabbed the other side. Before the executioner threw all of his weight on it to strangle Tyndale, Tyndale's final words were a prayer. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. (laughs) Tyndale was strangled, and after he was strangled, he was burned at the stake. His corpse was burned at the stake. The only people that they burned alive were Anabaptists, people that were rebaptizing people who had already been baptized. (laughs) Tyndale had not gotten around to that particular crime, and so he was not forced to be burned alive like they burned Baptists alive in the 1500s in England. (laughs) So in 1536, Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake for the crime of believing that you and me ought to have the Bible in the language that we can understand. Four years after that, in 1540, Henry VIII commissioned the translation of four English Bibles, including the Great Bible, which would later be revised by King James into the King James Version. In fact... If you compare, the King James translators were actually kind of lazy. 83% of the words in the New Testament of the King James Version are Tyndale's translation. (laughs) And 76% of the words in the Old Testament are Tyndale's translation. (laughs) Of course, all the Bibles, all the modern translations stuff today stand in the heritage of the King James Version. The reason you have the Bible today in a language that you can understand is because William Tyndale gave his life, translating right up to the very end, and said, you ought to have the scriptures. And once people got the scriptures, once people could read it in their own language, so they found out that so many of the things that they'd been told were not true. (laughs) And it changed people's hearts, and it changed the world. So this small group of churches that had been a you know, oppressed and forced into hiding since 325 AD began to grow in strength as they had more and more converts as even people who had been priests read the Bible in a language they could understand for the first time. Now, I could probably stop right here with asking you the question. This book that God went through the trouble of inspiring men to write that God preserved and brought to you, and that people gave their lives so it could be in a language that you could read. What do you do with it? (laughs) One of the first principles of Christianity is the word of God alone, sola scriptura in Latin. (laughs) Essential things. 
is that while the um, Roman Catholic Church announced that there were two equal authorities, there was the Bible and there was the tradition of the church, and we say that nothing matters except the Bible, that the Bible alone holds our conscience, that if we can see it from the Bible, it is true, and if it's not from the Bible, then it holds no authority on us, although every other person disagree. Are you willing to say, I take my stands on the scripture and the scripture alone? The elders, the the people, the Pope and the other cardinals, the leaders in the Catholic Church said, the reason it was too dangerous to let people have the Bible is that the Bible is just a dead book and you need living people to interpret it so that you can make sure you get the right answer. That people, given the Bible on their own, would just misinterpret the Bible. And then that brings me to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Under the inspiration of God, one of the, uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Under the inspiration of God, this man picked up his pen and wrote, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and of spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That word quick, the word of God is quick, does not mean speedy. You heard somebody say the quick and the dead. It means alive. (laughs) It says the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Have you ever read the Bible or had somebody read the Bible to you and experienced the Bible as a two-edged sword? (laughs) You experienced the Bible as something sliced you right through? If you haven't, then you've never read the Bible. (laughs) Never read it with understanding. You know, if you read the Bible and you don't find anything that presses against you, if you read the Bible and you still, you still feel like, okay, I've got this all together when you finish, then you've just skimmed it. You have never really encountered it. A lot of times, you know, people read the Bible. They say, okay, I've got to read from here to here, and then I'm going to check. Yes, I've done my Bible reading for the day. And they're never changed. They're never touched because not, it's not touching their heart. So, but the Bible, the Word of God, is quick to lie. And it's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. What does it mean when it says that it's sharp? It says it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The funny thing about the Bible is that it cuts you. It cuts you down to the difference between your mind and your spirit, your soul and your spirit. It cuts you down to the point where you have to see, is this me or is this God? It cuts you, you know, joints and marrow. It cuts you into the depths of your body physically. You've got to change your behavior when the Bible gets you. And in fact, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Bible's not content for you to improve your behavior. God wants to change your heart. That's a sharp word. And that's something that's incredibly powerful about the Bible, that no tradition or no experience or no personal renewal or no counselor or no anything else can do is change your heart. The only one who can change your heart is God. And God has chosen to change your heart through his word. And as he's taken his word and it's been put into your language for you to read, your opportunity then is to say, there's only one thing that's alive that can change me. But then we run into the same issue, don't we? Oh, well, you know... You've got to have, I mean, the Bible's good, 
We've got to have our traditions too. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. We're going a little different today. We're bouncing around a little bit. You'll survive. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. We're going to read the first nine verses here. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Let me give you a little bit of context here. In the ancient Jewish world, they had a a system of rules. They had the Bible, they had the Old Testament, and then they had their traditions. You know, they said, you've got to listen to the Bible. But, you know, the Bible's not all that clear sometimes, so then you've got to have the traditions, too, that explain to you how to understand the Bible. It's the same thing the Roman Catholic Church had done in the 14th century. It's the same thing that people do today when they add things to what God has said. Okay? Now, one of these traditions was that you would take a special cup that had two handles on it, and one cup was the, one handle was the dirty handle, and the other cup was the clean handle, ceremonially. You'd take one hand, and you'd grab the dirty handle with it, and you'd pour it over your hand, and then you'd lay it down, and then you'd grab the clean handle with your new clean hand, and you'd dump it on your dirty hand, and now your hands were ceremonial clean. You'd wash your sins off your hands, okay? Now, Jesus' disciples said, that's silly, you know. There's nothing in the Bible that says it's a sin to eat without pouring water in this ritual over your hands. He said, you've just added that to what God's already said. You don't have any right to add commandments that God has not commanded. He said, why do your disciples do this, Jesus? Why are your disciples breaking the traditions of men? But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? He says, he doesn't talk to them about washing their hands. He says, Why do you abandon God's commandment for the sake of your traditions? He said, For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother. And he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me and honor not his father and his, or his mother, he shall be free. Are you going to have to get a little context on this too? In the ancient world, the ancient Jewish world, you were allowed to dedicate certain things that you had to God. And so these people were essentially writing out their wills and saying, okay, when I die, everything that's mine belongs to God. And so then when their parents needed to be honored, honor doesn't just mean, you know, say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Honor means to support them and care for them, listen to them, these kind of things. said, when their parents, their elderly parents needed help, they would say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I can't. I've already dedicated everything that I have to God. And so by their tradition, they went around the back and they, they, they disobeyed the fifth commandment Because they said, well, I can't keep the commandment and the tradition, and I sided with the tradition first. You say, well, we would never do anything like that today. There are... God has given us the commandment to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But my tradition says that I'm not going to hang out with this kind of person or be around this kind of person. So, you know, somebody else is going to have to go to them. And we have taken the commandment of God 
and nullified it for the sake of our tradition. You see the same thing in, um, in lots of ways. The, in the, well, at the time of uh, Tyndale, you know, they, they did all of their church services in, in Latin. You know. God says, they that worship me shall worship me in spirit and in truth. You can't worship in truth if you don't understand what you're saying. I wonder on some of our hymns, if I were to ask some of you what some of the words are that you've been singing your entire lives, how many of you would know what the hymn is about? One of my favorite examples is, "'Tis the grandest theme in the earth or main. "'Tis the grandest theme for a mortal strain." What does that mean? Well, I don't know. <laughs> main is an old English term for ocean, so it means on land or sea, it's the greatest song. <laughs> I don't know how much you were instructed by that song or not. I don't know, but... My point is that if we say things and don't understand them or we do things and our, our tradition say, well, we always sing this song, so it doesn't matter if I understand it or not, nullifies the commandment of God, we've got a problem. When, things, when we say, well, we always do things this way, you know, we always, uh, I don't know, I can't, can't think of a particular example, but if we've got a tradition that keeps us from doing what God has told us to do, then we have abandoned the commandments of God for the commandments of men. In fact, you know, Paul says, I am become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. So we say, well, my tradition is that I do this this way. You know, this is, this is how I think Christians ought to have church. And that method keeps me from reaching people Then I have spat on the commandment of God to hold up my tradition. Okay. He says, thus have you made the commandment of God none effect by your tradition. Verse 7, he says, ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You know, I have got no right to command you anything that God has not commanded. You know, I, don't, I don't get to do that. <laughs> he says, their worship is futile, it's vain, it's smoke. He says, they look like they're close to me, their words are right, but their hearts are far from me because they're not teaching the commandments of God, they're teaching the commandments of men. So if I stand up here and I tell you, okay, you need to vote for this person and you need to wear these kind of clothes and you need to not go to these movies or whatever. And I have said things that God has not said. It says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Teaching is doctrine, the commandments of men. Our commitment to Scripture alone means that we don't get to add anything to Scripture and we don't get to take anything away from Scripture. <laughs> that means that there are some things that the Bible says that you may wish the Bible didn't say. There are some things the Bible doesn't say that you may wish the Bible said, but it's not up to you. The Spirit of the Word of God is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. So you say, you know, I wish that the Bible didn't say these things about divorce and marriage and, you know, all these things that make it sound so bad. <laughs> You may say, well, I wish the Bible said that uh, 
people weren't allowed to do this or that thing that bothers me. But you don't get to pick. The Bible is the word. The Bible is the rule, faith and practice. The Bible tells us what to do and how to do it. So there's two errors. You know, there's the error that says, well, there's the Bible that's authoritative, and then there's this tradition that's authoritative. And then there's the error that says, well, neither one's authoritative. I'm just going to do what I want. But we say, let God be true and every man a liar. (laughs) It doesn't matter what people say. It matters what God says. And I probably should have included uh, one of my favorite little verses in uh, verse 12 in Matthew 15. I don't have it on the screen, but you can look at it anyway. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? (laughs) Jesus says, In vain you worship me, teaching his doctrine the commandments of men. You've added your traditions to the word of God, and you've abandoned the word of God. You've abandoned your heart from God, and you put on all this show, but it means nothing. The disciples come to Jesus and say, Do you know that you offended them when you said that? That hurt their feelings. You know, this, I don't know. It doesn't have anything to do with what I wanted to say. I just I always read that and kind of smile a little bit. Like, yeah, it did offend them a little bit. <laughs> the Word of God does that too, doesn't it? You know, sometimes steps on your toes. You're like, I wish that he wouldn't say that. Wish God wouldn't say that. You know, somebody has well said that uh, if somebody's preaching from the Bible and they step on your toes, you better move your feet, right? <laughs> you're probably, you, know, you better decide, well, I better get this fixed. Famously, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 tell us a lot about the scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So we've seen that the Bible is alive. We've seen that the Bible stands over all of our traditions and that the Bible alone is our standard. But now I want to tell you why. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. You probably know these verses by heart. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I'm going to start in verse 17, and then I'm going to click back, Sister Lisa. We'll look at that. But the purpose of the Bible is this, that the man of God, that God's person, may be perfect. That word perfect doesn't mean perfect like without flaw. Perfect in the Old English means complete. Okay? It means have thoroughly equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. If you have the Bible... You have everything that you need to do everything God asks of you. You're equipped. So what do we see? He says, all scripture. Now, you say, well, I don't like that part that says, I use this example already, where Jesus says that if a man divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, he commits adultery. I don't like that part. I don't like the part that says that marriage is between one man and one woman when Jesus says, uh, for this cause it's written, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall be one flesh. Or I don't like that part that says thou shalt not covet. You know, I think you need to be a little bit greedy to ever be really successful. Or I don't like that part that says pay your taxes. Give honor to whom honor is due, tribute to whom tribute, custom to custom. I don't like those parts, you know. And so I don't feel like, you know, that's really 
scripture, you know, I'm going to focus on the red letters. You know, I really like that stuff Jesus said about, like, being happy. I don't know. <laughs> Here it's written, all scripture. Now that means from Genesis 1 all the way through <laughs> is given by who? Inspiration of God. Inspiration is one of the neatest words. Inspiration means breathed. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, people wrote it. Let me give you a little bit of theology here. You've got, for example, 2 Timothy was written by Paul. Paul writes. Paul writes differently than Luke writes or Matthew writes or Moses writes or John writes. Paul writes in Paul's style. But the Bible says in uh, 2 Peter that holy men of old spake as they were moved, that God puts his spirit inside of Paul and keeps Paul, when he's writing the scripture, from writing anything wrong. The Holy Spirit guides him to have all the perfect words. So it says exactly what God would have him to say, even though it's written in Paul's style. Okay? It's like a windsock. A windsock has the shape that the wind gives it, but it's got the color of the windsock. In fact, there's one place where um, Paul makes an argument based on a single word in the Old Testament. He says it's seed, not seeds. He says every letter was carefully chosen and selected by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's good for three things, for four things, I'm sorry. It is profitable for doctrine. The Bible teaches us what to believe. For reproof. Uh-oh. If there's one thing I don't like, it's being corrected. Don't you tell me to not do something that I'm doing. And one of the most important things about you is how you respond to reproof. If somebody corrects you, you can either take that very well or you can take that very badly. <laughs> In fact, I'd argue from the book of Proverbs that the difference in a wise man and a fool is not how much they know, but how they respond to being taught. The Bible says, rebuke a wise man and he will love you, reprove a fool and he will hate you. If I tell you something or somebody tells you something and says, hey, you shouldn't be doing this. And you puff up and get angry and say, who are you to tell me what to do? Then you're never going to get any smarter than you are and you're never going to be any better than you are. You say, well, I've been doing it like this for six months. You know, works fine. Scripture, every scripture, all of scripture gives us what we need to be corrected when we do wrong to reprove us. For correction, to tell us, okay, not, the Bible doesn't just say, don't do this. The Bible says, here's how you fix it. Here's how you correct it. You talk about those things, about marriage and different things like that, and the Bible says, well, the man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife. The two shall be one flesh. You know how marriages go wrong? It's somebody doesn't leave or somebody doesn't cleave, right? Don't point at anybody, but you know people that get married and they're still at home. They may not physically be at mom and dad's, but they're, they, never, they never left. And my mom never did it this way, or my dad never did it. You know, they never leave. There's some that never cleave. You know, they never give themselves over to one person. They're never really attached. You've got, got people who get married and have already gotten their minds. Well, if we get divorced, it'll be okay. And then shall be one flesh. So 
You can become one. Same goal, same you give up your life for the other person, to be the other person. <laughs> so the Bible tells us, don't do certain things. Here's how you correct it. For, for instruction in righteousness. The Bible's not just don't do these things. So the Bible's good for doctrine about what we should believe, good for reproof about what we shouldn't do, good for correction about how we correct those things, and then good for instruction in righteousness, teaching us how to do things that we'd never thought about before. <laughs> And when you read the Bible, you get rubbed on in all these different ways. What do I believe? What do I stop doing? What do I start doing? How is this going to make me more like God? That, you've got to have all these things, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You have here the book that teaches us everything that we believe. If you... I don't even know how to say this. If you don't believe something that's in the Bible, you've got a problem. If you believe something about how to live in a way that's pleasing to God that doesn't come from the Bible, then you've got a problem. I mean, you certainly believe things that aren't in the Bible. You know, you believe that uh, Donald Trump's the president and that you know you live in Richwood and things like that that are not in the Bible. But if you think that you have some rules about how to live or how to do church or how to serve God or how to pray or how to, that don't come from the Bible, then in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrine, the commandments of men. So the question is, how much do we believe the Bible? Do we believe that the Bible and the Bible alone is our rule of practice, and do we bring ourselves underneath the Bible? When you read something in the Bible that says you need to stop doing something, you need to change your attitude, you need to change your behavior... Do you start looking for excuses not to do that? Like, well, you know, that's true, but it's also written here, you know. Or do you say, okay, yes, Lord. Your word has cut me sharper than any two-edged sword, and now I'm going to do what you said. <laughs> or not. You know, uh, I heard a, a man say once that um, the only person an excuse satisfies is the user. <laughs> The only, the only person that's impressed with your excuses is you. The only person that's impressed with my excuses is me. So God says, get with the program. I've given you a book. <laughs> the Bible is made up of 66 books written by 40 different people over 1,500 years in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, mostly Hebrew. About uh, 60% Hebrew, 35% Greek, 5% Aramaic. Mostly the Old Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. You say, well, the New Testament's really good. The Old Testament stuff, I just get kind of stuck. So you believe God when he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Let's look at it. Another verse now, Isaiah 66, verse 1. The last chapter of the book of Isaiah. The first verse. Thus saith the Lord. 
The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. God says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What can you give me? God says, everything, that I, everything you have, I made. You're going to give me a better throne than heaven? No. Everything on the earth is for me to kick up my feet on. He says, what can you do for me? All these things have my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. God says, I spoke, and it was mine. So what can you do to impress me? We try to impress God. You know, I'm going to change his behavior. I'm going to do this. I'm going to impress. I'm going to bring this money or whatever. Look at me. I'm so good. Isn't God lucky to have me on his team? He says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Everything is mine. So who is going to get my attention? This is the man that I'll look to. Him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. Poor does not mean, you know, you have to not have money for God to pay attention. You have a blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus would later say. Come to the Lord and say, I don't have anything. I'm dependent on you and contrite, humble, broken. And trembleth at my word. So my question for you is pretty simple, I think. Do you come to God with a poor spirit? Say, Lord, I, I don't have anything that I can bring you. Heaven is your throne and earth is your footstool and there's nothing that I can contribute to you. Do you come to God with a contrite spirit? Lord, I'm sorry that I've sinned against you. I've rebelled against you. And do you tremble at his word? Say, Lord, what a thing it is that you've given me. What a thing it is that you've put in my hand. When you think about how the Bible came to you, some people will say dumb things like, oh, there's translations of translations and stuff, which is not, not true. Moses wrote the Genesis in Hebrew. It was collected and preserved by Joshua and some minor changes made to, about the names of places and stuff to have the modern names of his day. And it was kept. And they made copies of it and they distributed the copies so they'd have backups. They made copies of that. But you've got the original words that Moses wrote, brought through. They're translated into Greek. And the Greek copies and the Hebrew copies continued through. Finally, well, it was translated into Latin also. But finally, Tyndale came and he took the Hebrew text of Genesis, 
the same words that Moses wrote, that God had allowed scribes to make careful copies of throughout the centuries. And we know they're careful copies, I guess I have to say, because there's a wide range of them, and they all say the same thing. When you, t- when you look at different manuscripts, you say, well, don't they contradict each other? Some of them say things like Christ Jesus, when other ones say things like Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, the, the, the differences in, in them are so minor that you know what it was that Moses wrote. Tyndale took it and translated it into English, which is effectively how it got into your hands. God prepared Moses his entire life to write those words, and then God guided him as he wrote them. So you hold in your hand the perfect living word of God. God's revealed himself in lots of ways. You know, we know God reveals himself through the stars, and you look and you say, wow, what a thing God's done. God reveals himself through events. You know, you feel like, oh, God opened this door, shut this door. God reveals himself even in your heart. But all those things can be deceived. You you can misinterpret something. Your emotions can be tainted. You can be pulled in different ways. You've got to have one thing that's the standard where you can test every other thing. And the only perfect, unchanging standard is the word of God. Jesus came down. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God came down as the living word. Because you and I are not able to perfectly follow the written word. You don't have to read it for very long to find out that you don't have it. But then he said, I'll put my spirit in your heart. The same spirit that empowered Moses to write the Bible. The same spirit that empowered Paul to write the Bible. The same spirit that came down on Jesus like a dove when he was baptized. That same spirit is in you. That same power is in you. So you want to be able to interpret the Bible? You want to be able to understand the Bible when you read it? You want to be able to live out the Bible? The secret of the Christian life is that you can't do it, right? The secret of the Christian life is that you do not have the strength, you do not have the power. The secret of the Christian life is the only way to live the Christian life is to have Jesus live through you. So practically, in our last three minutes, what does that look like? If you take the Bible open the Bible, and you pray first. Say, Lord, I can't understand this on my own. It's too great for me. Lord, I want you to help me understand. And then you read. And when you read, you say, okay, I know the Bible has told me that the word of God is good for doctrine, for what I should believe, for correct, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness. Show me what I should believe, what I should stop doing, what I should start doing. And if you're new to the Bible, you're new to really seriously studying the Bible, one of the best things you can do is have your Bible here, have a pen and a paper here, and write down, okay, my reading today, I read through Matthew 1 through 4. Take you about 15 minutes to read. 
Here's what I learned I should believe. Here's what I learned I should stop doing. Here's what I learned I should start doing. And then you pray for God to help you do it. And the spirit that's helping you understand is the spirit that wrote the Bible and makes the Bible alive is the spirit that lets you do it. You see the power that's there where it's all God the whole way through? If I try to figure out what I should do with my head and then try to figure out how to do it with my own strength and then try to do it in my own way, then I'm going to have disaster after disaster after disaster. The only way that I'm ever going to have power in my life is when it's the Spirit of God working through me. The Spirit of God moved holy men of old. The Spirit of God came and dwelled in the temple. The Spirit of God came and anointed Jesus and said, He is the Son of God. Here is God in the flesh. And when you turn from your sin and trust in God, the Bible says the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you. Can you imagine? Have you ever read a book? And says, well, I wonder what this means. I don't understand this book. <laughs> I have read books before and thought, I wonder what they meant. I think I told you before, there's a famous biblical scholar who wrote a book, wrote these long, thick books, and he was teaching one day at a university. One of his students came up to him and said, sir, I don't understand this paragraph. The professor took it in his hand and looked at it and read it. When I wrote this, there were two that understood what I meant. Me and God. He said, now there's one. <laughs> if you have the author with you 90% of the time, 99%, you would have a big benefit in understanding what they were trying to write. What did you mean when you said this? Why do you have this character do this? Why do you do this like this? You got the benefit of the author. When you read the Bible, chapters in the New Testament, that means that if you read three chapters a day, about ten minutes, you read the New Testament in three, four months. Sorry, I did that wrong. <laughs> 270 chapters in the New Testament in three months if you read three chapters a day. That's not what I'm going to tell you to do. What I'm going to tell you to do is pick a book of the Bible, pick a short book of the Bible, Galatians or Ephesians or 1 John, and read it over and over and over again. Read it a day for a month. And by the time that's done, do you know what happens? You've got that book memorized. Maybe not word for word, but you know what's in it. And if you pray, God help me to understand this when you read it through. If you pray, say, God help me to understand this when you read it through. It will change your life. James. If you pick, if you would do that, if you read Galatians, Ephesians, James, or 1 John, and you decide to read it through 40 days in a row, Pray first, you're going to make some notes, you're going to pray after and try to live it out. Your life would never be the same because the Word of God is quick and sharper than a good sword. 15 minutes a day for a month, 40 days, something like that. Change your life. Never had anybody actually follow through on that that didn't completely change their life. Most people do it for about a week and say, I'm getting bored. It's not in your heart yet. You know, I will hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's another reason you ought to memorize the Bible. Anyway, I know you can't memorize the Bible. You can just memorize phone numbers and songs and take calls. When I put the Bible in my heart, it's alive. And it's with me all the time. And if you've trusted Christ, then the spirit that's in you is the spirit that's